The workers were on Lake Michigan a mile and a half from shore when the fire started. Today we're talking about the 71st Street crib disaster of 1909. I'm Tommy Henry and this is the Chicago History Podcast. This episode deals with horrific stories involving loss of life and is not recommended for delicate ears. Listener discretion is advised. Chicago has always been fortunate to have Lake Michigan right next to it, but Chicagoans haven't always made the best choices when it came to how they treated our area waterways. By 1865, Chicago had roughly 179,000 residents, but not a great infrastructure when it came to dealing with refuse disposal, which included human waste, horse manure, and excess scraps from Chicago stockyards. Much of this waste product was disposed in the Chicago River, eventually making its way to the lake, which supplied the city's drinking water. Epidemics from waterborne diseases like cholera were a significant problem for Chicago in the second half of the 1800s. As the flow of the Chicago River would not be reversed until 1900, tainted water sickened Chicagoans in large numbers, and without modern medicine to treat illnesses such as cholera, typhoid, and dysentery caused by bacteria, people died. In his 1887 book, 40 Years on the Rail Reminiscences of a Veteran Conductor, author Charles B. George included this. Among the sad reminiscences of my Waukegan run were those connected with the many funerals going from Chicago to Rose Hill and Calvary cemeteries, which are among the largest on the continent. I remember way back in 1866 when the cholera was raging in Chicago, I ran one of the largest funeral trains that was ever known. I had 30 passenger cars containing over 2,000 people and one freight car in which were the dead bodies of 40 persons who had died on the previous day. It is possible the author was mistaken as to when this train of the dead moved its unfortunate passengers, as it was actually 12 years earlier, in 1854, that Chicago experienced one of the worst cholera outbreaks, taking the lives of nearly 6% of the city's population. But you get the idea. It wasn't as though Chicago's leaders weren't concerned about how the city's water system was being used. In her book, The Chicago River, A Natural and Unnatural History, Author Libby Hill explains. They were well aware they were carving this future metropolis out of poorly drained marsh. On November 7, 1833, the progressive little town tried to protect its drinking water and prevent offensive odors by enacting an anti-pollution ordinance. By the terms of this ordinance, citizens were forbidden to use the river as a receptacle for, quote, dung, dead animal carrion, putrid meat or fish entrails, or decayed vegetables or any other offensive substance, whatever. In 1834, in the throes of a cholera scare, the town adopted a more stringent ordinance. But when the scare abated... Offensive substances penetrated the waterway. By 1845, the Chicago River, the dumping ground of refuse from the slaughterhouses, had become foul.
Another issue with Chicago's supply of water was that as cold weather approached, millions of tiny fish would gather at the enclosure near shore from where the water was pumped. Although efforts were made to limit the fish from getting into the drinking water supply, they were often able to anyway and would even come out in residence taps. According to author Jack Wing in his 1867 book, The Great Chicago Lake Tunnel, Every drop of water drank in the city was highly flavored of fish, and one was obliged to look twice in his goblet to see he did not swallow one alive. Mm. In 1855, Chicago appointed a board of sewerage commissioners. The board called on a city engineer then employed by the city of Boston named Ellis Sylvester Chesbro to develop a comprehensive sewage plan. Chesbro seemed well-suited for this effort. His background was in canal construction, and he had received training in hydrology. Now, Chesbro had no experience in building sewer systems, as no American city had one back then. But after investigating cities in Europe that did have them, he returned and wrote a manual for sewer building. For Ellis Chesbro's new sewer system to work, buildings in the city needed to be physically raised between 4 and 14 feet to allow for the new sewer system to be installed. The grade of the street level was then raised anywhere from 2 feet to 6 feet. Honestly, the whole story is bonkers and needs its own episode, which I plan to do, so I won't spend too much time on it here. Chicago citizens continue to have issues with foul-smelling and tasting water even after this new raising of the city occurred. So Ellis Cheesebro came up with a new solution. He wanted to build structures out in the lake, away from the shoreline filth, that could then transport fresh water to the city for consumption via tunnels. Construction of the first water crib began in May of 1864, with crews working around the clock six days a week to build the first tunnel called the Two Mile Crib. This brick-lined tunnel would be five feet in diameter and dug 60 feet beneath Lake Michigan. Construction for the tunnel began from the shore and soon after started at the lake area two miles east of Chicago Avenue. In less than three years, the shoreline crew and the lake crew met under the lake in November of 1866, mere inches out of alignment. Water began flowing from the crib to the city in March of 1867, and city planners and grateful citizens declared the tunnel the, quote, wonder of America and of the world. Over the next 50-plus years, eight more water cribs would be built, including the 68th Street Crib in 1892, roughly 2.3 miles east of 59th Street Harbor, which brought fresh water to those on the city's south side. To increase the amount of water supply to the city, a second water crib in that area was scheduled for completion in 1909. On January 20th, 1909, there were reportedly 100 men working on the construction of the new tunnel at an intermediate crib approximately a mile and a half from the shore around 71st Street. Divided into three shifts, these working men had accommodations for sleeping and eating, lessening the need to go back to shore as often. The men working at the intermediate crib were mostly immigrants, a large number of them Irish, Basic laborers were paid a very meager amount per week, plus room and board, while they worked on the tunnel. Those with tunnel digging experience were paid a little bit more. 
The temporary structure was, according to news sources, made of wood made strong enough to withstand the waves and ice, but in no sense fireproof. In the center of the structure was a 180-foot shaft connecting with the tunnel below under construction. That morning, someone smelled smoke, then saw flames. Someone shot at fire, and all hell broke loose. In the chaos, any fire prevention gear on hand was not put into use, but as quickly as the flames began to engulf the structure, it likely wouldn't have helped. Aware of the danger, men began to rush to the doors, windows, anywhere they could to get away from the fire. They began to bunch up at the exits, causing those trying to escape the advancing flames to panic even more. One of the men at the crib made a frantic telephone call to the shore office, shouting, The crib is on fire. For God's sake, send help at once or we will all be burned alive. The tug? The line went dead. Fortunately, that call was enough to set off fire alarms in the city. Once outside, the men had no means of escape. Due to bad weather, a supply tug, which normally would have been moored at the construction site, had relocated to the harbor. If there were life jackets at the crib, the men couldn't find them in all the smoke. Flames reached the aerial tramway connecting the water crib to shore, cutting off that option of escape. Outside the structure, nearly a dozen men held onto a heavy pulley rope until it too burned, sending those men into the icy water below. On the north side of the water crib was earth and sand pulled during the excavation process that had been dumped into the 30 feet of water until it created a pile 8 feet above the surface. This gave some of the men who escaped the structure a few minutes of safety, but as the fire grew in intensity, a strong south wind pushed the flames and heat toward them, forcing them back into the frigid waters. The tug T.T. Morford was tied up at the 68th Street crib half a mile away. When Captain E.A. Johnson saw that the temporary crib was on fire, he and his men sped to the site, doing all they could to break through the four-inch ice flows. As the tug approached the crib, the men on board uncoiled ropes and threw anything that would float, boxes, crates, anything, overboard in the hopes that it might provide some relief for those in the water until they could be pulled out. Many of the men floating in the chilly waters had been sleeping in the nude when the fire broke out and did not have a chance to get dressed. They tried desperately to balance themselves on large sheets of floating ice. One man, a timekeeper named Richard McDonald, was so exhausted he released his grip on the chunk of ice and slipped under the water's surface before he could be rescued. Within 10 minutes of arriving at the crib, the Morford had gathered more than 45 men overloading the boat. Heading to the crib at 68th Street, 18 men with slight injuries were dropped off to the care of those there who were standing by, ready with dry clothing and hot coffee and food. The Morford then raced north on Lake Michigan to the Well Street Bridge, where ambulances were waiting to take the maimed and injured victims to the local hospitals. While the Morford was doing all it could to help, three additional tugs were on their way to the site. Fireboats soon arrived to pour water into the burned-out crib, to extinguish the fire and cool down the ruins. With those rescued now being cared for, a tug called the Sabin approached the site to check for survivors and to remove the dead. City Coroner Peter Hoffman was on deck as firemen and volunteers collected the bodies. From the Chicago Tribune, No work that could be assigned to human hands could exceed the horror this ghastly task. 
Everywhere in the fallen crevices of incinerated timbers, these blackened, headless, armless, legless remnants of men lay charred beyond hope of recognition. When the workers in the ruins declared the last body possible had been heaped at the edge of the pile, the workers were taken aboard and a fast run made to the pumping station, where the worn, sickened men were landed. With a half-dozen fresh workers, the Sabin returned, and the remaining eight or nine bodies covered with the remnants of a scorched overcoat were piled on the forward deck, and the tug headed for the harbor of South Chicago. Word had gotten out to the neighborhood locals about the fire, and the bridge at 92nd Street was packed with onlookers. Hundreds of spectators crowded the edge of the pier as police fought to move them back. Seeing the number of civilians on shore, Coroner Hoffman ordered the boat to swing over to a less visible area out of sight of that crowd. Officers at the South Chicago Police Station had prepared gunny sacks and bundles of linen for use by the coroner and his crew. With a pencil and a pad of paper in hand, Coroner Peter Hoffman began the process of checking off the number of dead, instructing the half-dozen men on board assisting him, quote, make sure each bag is filled with the complete trunk of a man, end quote. It was 5 p.m. by the time the last of those who died was placed in a sack. The boat headed to the dock where police had gotten the crowd under control. The sacks were then offloaded, and brought to the local undertaker. Thirty-two sacks were laid out on tables for examination. One of the sacks contained seven charred skulls. Another contained nothing but limbs. Identification of these poor souls would be impossible. The fireboat Conway returned to the harbor later that day with the body of an African-American worker, the only intact body found by the water crib that day. Coroner Hoffman was later quoted as saying, It is the ghastliest spectacle of my experience in the office of coroner. I hope I shall never be called upon to view another site like it. There is no hope of identifying one of these bodies. By the end of that grim day, 48 men had been rescued and 47 bodies had been recovered. It was thought that 12 men may have drowned before the tug reached the site. We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American. Hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean American community awaits. Men who escaped the fire claim that three tons of explosives used in the construction of the tunnel were stored within the wooden walls of the water crib. George W. Jackson, contractor in charge of the construction of the crib, was quick to deny that, claiming that there was only a day's supply, 300 pounds on site. The remaining three tons 
was on the shore. No matter the amount on board, the men were fortunate the explosives did not explode. Quote, it simply burned like so much sawdust soaked with an inflammable fluid. Contractor George W. Jackson claimed there were only 79 men on the payroll the day before and that they had, quote, taken every precaution as to safety and fire appliances to guard against fire explosion and accidents of all sorts, end quote. There were several hypotheses circulating as to what started the fire. A city engineer suggested a worker may have dropped a lit match or a spark from a pipe may have been the cause. A janitor may have sprinkled gas in the cracks between the floorboards to ward off bedbugs, and the gas may have ignited when it got too close to one of the stoves that warmed the building. An African-American worker named Nathan Foltz was held for questioning when another surviving worker claimed to have seen Foltz walking with a torch moments before the fire started. On the morning of Saturday, January 23rd, a Requiem High Mass was sung at the Immaculate Conception Catholic Church at 88th and Commercial Avenue for All the Dead. One empty black casket, representing the remains of the Catholic workmen who died in the blaze, was nearby. Forty-seven horse-drawn hearses guided by 200 policemen moved through the streets of South Chicago. Thousands of mourners, as well as Chicago's curious, lined the sides of the streets as church bells tolled around the city. Out of respect to those lost in the fire, businesses along the route were closed. According to the Chicago Tribune, the immediate mourners walked behind the hearses, followed by a handful of bandaged and limping survivors. At the head of the procession was acting Chief of Police Herman Schuttler, along with three other ranking officers. Employees of the George W. Jackson Company were close behind, including Jackson himself and Daniel O'Connor, superintendent of the crib. While the mourners following the hearses walked in rows of four across at first, it wasn't long before the weeping group began to fall away, struggling to hold back tears. Mrs. Bridget Convey, who lost two sons and a nephew in the disaster, said, quote, I can't stand it. God help me before sinking to the ground. At Mount Greenwood Cemetery at 111th Street, simple last rites were given. One immense single grave had been dug. As the 47 caskets were lowered into the ground, a wreath given by the George W. Jackson Company was placed on each. Jackson also arranged to cover the cost of the 47 burials. Father Edward O'Reilly of St. Patrick's Church read from the Latin service. Reverend L. T. Allen of the Presbyterian Church of South Chicago also offered a prayer. According to the Chicago Tribune's coverage of the funeral of the thousands of people who were at the cemetery, only a small portion appeared to be mourners. Quote, The relatives of the victims who carried their grief with them on the journey to the cemetery were jostled rudely by aggressive curiosity seekers, eaters of popcorn and confectionery who had come to the funeral merely as a spectacle, stood in the front row around the grave while frail women and children and men whose spirit had been broken by the loss of a brother or a father wept softly behind the throng unable to hear the words of the clergyman. End quote. 
Fortunately, the Chicago police there recognized what was going on and did their level best to push back the looky-loos so that the true mourners could do so in peace. Also on that Saturday, workmen dragging the lake in the vicinity of the water crib recovered two more bodies, including one identified as Richard McDonald, the timekeeper who was unable to hold on to the ice long enough to be pulled from the water. There were two others the searchers had snagged with grappling hooks, but the bodies had slipped off before they could reach them. Many expected the coroner's jury to, quote, hold the Jackson County responsible for the loss of 60 lives and that its findings will charge that nearly every law governing the operation of the crib as a lodging house for men and as a storage place for dynamite was violated by the Jackson Company. Instead, on February 17, 1909, less than one month after the horrific event, the coroner's jury announced they were unable to ascertain the cause of the fire and exonerated all parties, including George W. Jackson, Inc. and the city of Chicago from the charge of criminal carelessness. Among the findings made, the rule prohibiting smoking was not strictly enforced. The men had not been drilled in the use of the fire apparatus, and there was no established system for its employment. There were no boats or life rafts on the crib, and only 12 or 15 life preservers, not one-tenth enough for the number of men employed there. Fire precautions were sufficient for the blaze involving the framework, but not for a fire involving several hundred pounds of dynamite. Because of poor record-keeping and the transient nature of many of those employed as tunnel diggers, the exact number of those who died while working on the tunnel has never been determined. The coroner's jury set the number of dead at 60, though it may have been more. Construction eventually resumed on the tunnel, and finally the Edward F. Dunn crib was put into use. The crib was named in honor of former Chicago Mayor Edward Fitzsimmons Dunn, who was instrumental in getting the structure approved. Dunn would later serve as governor of Illinois from 1913 to 1917. Ellis Cheesebro, who helped guide the city's sewer system and created the first water crib to bring fresh water to the city from the lake, died in Chicago on August 18, 1886, at the age of 72, and is buried at Graceland Cemetery. Of the nine water cribs built between 1865 and 1935, only two are still listed as active, including the one eventually finished in 1909. As for the mass burial site on the city's south side, a simple brass plaque donated by the Mount Greenwood Cemetery Association reads, quote, In memory of crib fire, 45 unknown men, January 20, 1909. Thanks for listening to the 71st Street Crib Disaster of 1909. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. 
If you want to reach out with questions or suggestions for future topics, you can leave me a voice message by going to the ChicagoHistoryPod.com page and clicking on the microphone in the lower corner. Depending on the content, I may play your message on a future episode. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Very nice, Johnny. He can be found at Angel Eyes Art JKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Stay hydrated with a big glass of Chicago tap water. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.